You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com code SUPER24. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War Premium, episode number 21. This is our fifth episode on the development of military doctrine, both before and during the war. This episode was originally envisioned as sort of an overview, summary, and comparison between the various armies of Europe, and that will still happen in another episode to be released to us probably sometime later this week. This episode will be spent looking at the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the military plans before the war. If I'm honest, this content should have been earlier in this series, somewhere around when we talked about the French and their build-up for the war. The issue is I didn't find the main source for this information until I was already done with that episode, and actually done with the German one as well. So it just sort of is getting pushed here at the end. I find the information interesting, and I, I think it is always worth looking at information outside of French, German, and British sources. Um which seemed to be the big focus of the Patreon episodes due to the ease of finding sources pertaining to those countries. So with all that in mind, let's jump in. The Austro-Hungarian situation is great to talk about, if only because nobody ever seems to discuss it in much detail. The first thing to understand is that the empire had some serious issues when it came to a possible future war in the early 20th century. First of all, they would always be at a numerical disadvantage when confronting any of the major powers of Europe. This included most importantly Russia, which was the great power with the greatest chance of being on the other side of a war with the empire. This numerical inferiority would be true even if the conscription system within the empire ran perfectly smoothly and efficiently, which was absolutely not the case. Theoretically, every male in the Austro-Hungarian Empire was supposed to serve some time in the army during their life. However, there were any number of exemptions that they could get that would keep them from having to do this service. In a study that was released before the war, the conscription system of the empire would be described like this. Quote, Universal conscription exists among us only in theory, but not in reality, because the claims for exception by available able-bodied people liable for conscription are completely heterogeneous. Because of these exceptions, the burden of military service often fell on the lowest classes and the smallest minorities, with many of the best and brightest and most importantly the richest Austro-Hungarians able to find ways out of doing their time. 
With the understanding that their armies would always be smaller, many inside the Austrian high command focused on studying history to find instances where smaller forces had been victorious against more powerful foes. This then led them down two paths of somewhat mutually exclusive thought that roughly mirror similar divisions that were happening in the French army at the time. The first was that since the Austrian army would be smaller, it had to rely on superior leadership, equipment, and luck to win the day. On the other side, it was thought that the bravery of the infantry was the most important factor that would see them to victory. In this, you can see echoes of the French strategy, who were also um, always going to be at a numerical disadvantage when fighting the Germans. With these facts in mind, it might not surprise you to learn that much like the French, the cult of the offensive had definitely taken hold of the country, even before Conrad between, became chief of the general staff, at which point that belief would just be reinforced from the highest level. One of Conrad's most important works on military tactics, called Zum Studium der Taktik, devoted 105 pages to the offense and only 45 to the defensive. Most of this focus on the offensive manifested in similar ways to that of the French, a huge emphasis on the courage of the infantry, and a belief that through their courage and overwhelming offensive spirit, they could overcome any numerical or technological obstacle in their path. The Austrians looked at the Prussian forces of the 1866 and 1870 victories as inspiration for their plans for the next war. These involved daring offensive thrusts and high-risk, high-reward maneuvers deep into enemy territory to obtain an advantage. Should a war with their larger eastern neighbor begin, the Austrians planned to start the war with large attacks into Russian territory, instead of holding on the defensive on the frontier. There were even a few suggestions that the army could live off the land while it moved, lessening the need for a logistical train, which would never be an Austrian specialty. This was, of course, preposterous for, idea for armies on the 1914 scale to try and live off the land. In planning, there was a certain level of detail that was ignored in these attacks, and these kinds of details would end up being very important when it came to launching a large offensive into Russian territory. Even when faced with these problems, the Austrians adamantly refused to even entertain the option of standing on the strategic defensive for any reason. It was just not considered a viable option. In Austrian high command, it was believed that armies on the, on the defensive simply did not win wars. And much like in other countries, the cult of the offensive would move to a point beyond all reason, with the 1913 maneuvers featuring massed cavalry charges against fully entrenched infantry units, something that would have been suicidal on any battlefield of the early 20th century. The Austrians would take inspiration from two conflicts early in the 20th century, the Boer War and the Russo-Japanese War. From these two conflicts, they would find evidence that confirmed their military theories. For the Boer War, they generally expressed admiration for the impressive defense of the Boers, but believed that the British could have made these victories, if they had fixed some of the errors that they made. The Austrian general staff believed that the British had done a poor job of reconnaissance, which put them in inferior positions multiple times during the conflict. Then once they were in those positions, they did not properly prepare for the attacks that they launched. If they, would have made the, if they would not have made these mistakes, they probably would have won the war. The Austrians believed that the Boers, while being great on the defensive, had defended in far too passive of a manner. They should have been more aggressive with their counterattacks to properly capitalize on their successes. For the Austro-Hungarian High Command, this seemed to prove that they needed to be aggressive during the next conflict, and the Russo-Japanese War would even more strongly confirm these beliefs. The Japanese had won, and they had been on the offensive basically the entire war. The Russians had lost, and they had been on the defensive. 
The Japanese had also displayed great bravery in their attacks, often pushing attacks forward at all costs, many of which would eventually be successful. In these movements, the Austrians saw everything that they believed be successful against the Russians, the Russians, the greatest enemy. All of these conclusions were roughly the same as everyone else in Europe was coming to, with certain information ignored to confirm their own hypotheses that constant attacking was the only way to win. When Conrad took over command of the Austro-Hungarian army, his first order of business was to write up a new set of infantry regulations to be used by the army. These regulations clearly outlined what Conrad expected from the infantry. Quote, an infantry filled with lust for attack, physically and psychologically persevering, well-trained and well-led, will fight successfully against a numerically superior enemy. End quote. When these new regulations were put up for review, with 33 of the highest-ranking officers in the Austro-Hungarian army, 19 of them approved the instructions as a good path forward for the army, and none of the 33 reviewers would reject the new regulations. This is important to note because it would be these same 33 men who would play most of the critical roles in the Austro-Hungarian army during the First World War, with most holding the most important commands in the army in 1914. Conrad's offensive obsession was def definitively focused on the infantry. He believed that it would be these soldiers that were the decisive arm on the battlefield, and could in essence win a battle single-handedly. He would write, quote, The infantry is the main arm, able to fight at long range or at close quarters, in defense or in attack. The infantry can use its weapons with success against any, in any enemy in every type of terrain, by day as well as by night. It decides battles. Even without support from other arms and against a numerically superior enemy, it is capable of attaining the laurels of victory. If only it has trust in itself and has the will to fight. End quote. With so much emphasis and faith in the infantry, the role of the cavalry on the battlefield was altered. Instead of focusing so much on the attack, most of the Austro-Hungarian cavalry was shifted over to a reconnaissance and security role, since it was believed that the infantry would have more than enough attacking power when the time came. Hey everyone, I'm a busy person. Kids, job, a podcast you may have heard of, and because I'm so busy, sometimes I just do not want to cook. And that's why I'm here to talk to you about Factor. They are America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. I can tell you about how awesome the creamy pesto pork chop is, or how delicious the turkey chili and zucchini was, but everything I've tried from Factor tastes great. I think the part that surprised me the most is that after I ate them, I felt satisfied. I don't know of too many things that are ready in two minutes that leave me feeling great like Factor does. Factor has 34 plus delicious menu options that make my life easier and honestly healthier. And really, I need both of those things. So head over to factormeals.com GW50 and use code GW50 to get 50% off. That's code GW50 at factormeals.com GW50 to get 50% off. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com podcast. That's Grammarly.com podcast. Easier said, done.
you will note that we have not talked about artillery. Now, Conrad's views on artillery put it far lower in importance than the other armies at the time. The information that the Austrians gathered from the Russo-Japanese War cast some doubt about how important artillery was on the battlefield, and how critical it would be in the next war. This was because it had not made a huge difference in the war between the Russians and the Japanese. However, immediately before 1914, there was some evidence to the contrary, primarily out of the Balkan Wars. In the official report of the Austrian general staff about the two Balkan Wars, out of the six, out of the ten pages that were written, six were focused on artillery and the fact that the power of the big guns was growing as technology advanced. Conrad mostly rejected this out of fear that too much reliance on the artillery and its limited range and flexibility would reduce the ability and determination of his army to attack. Now, part of the issue here was that the Austrian army was still using cannons from 1875, even in the early 1900s, even though many other armies were rapidly updating to far more effective models. This meant that many of the discussions within the Austrian army were forced to predict the capability of artillery based on the guns that they had, not the guns that other countries had. And to put it bluntly, the Austrian guns sucked. Because they were so old and ineffective, this also reduced the amount of practice that they were given. The high command gave the artillery very little priority when it came to both practice time and supplies to make the practice a reality. In the years before the war, the Austrian artillery would fire only about 200 shots per battery per year, which is roughly half as many as other armies in Europe. This meant that they also had less practice coordinating with the infantry during exercises, which prevented the two arms from properly being tested and robbed them of the ability to improve their cooperation. As we've talked about before, and as we will soon talk about in the next Patreon episodes, this cooperation would be paramount on the battlefields of the First World War. So, I've just spent, I don't know, 10 minutes talking about the emphasis that the Austrians put on the offensive, and how much they wanted to attack. So, this next fact may surprise you. The largest items in the Austrian military budget in the decades before the war were not guns, or artillery, or infantry expenses, but fortresses. The Austrians at this point in history were not a rich nation. Their military budgets were less than any other great power in Europe for all of the years before the war. This put the Austro-Hungarian High Command in a tight spot, as they tried to decide how best to spend their limited funds. They knew that they would have less men, so they wanted to have better technology, and they could have purchased that technology and manufactured new weapons for their soldiers. However, there were also concerns that if they did not put money into their fortifications, they would be basically worthless. If you remember, back in our Verdun episodes, we talked a bit about how expensive fortification upgrades were in the last few decades before 1914. During the 40 years before the war, artillery saw drastic increases in size, accuracy, and explosive power, and this meant that permanent fortifications were always lagging behind. Just as one upgrade would be completed, another would have to be started to keep up. The Austrians ended up stuck in this cycle, and this caused them to pour hundreds of millions into their fortifications during this period. Unfortunately, even all of this money was insufficient to keep pace with artillery development. An argument could be made that this was still the right move. The Austrian army would be smaller than the Russian army, so they had to find a force multiplier somewhere, and fortifications are fantastic force multipliers. Fortifications would also be critical to guard most of the frontier, while the rest of the army was advancing deep into Russian territory. Unfortunately for the Austrians, due to their spending on fortifications, their armies did not have the means to launch their planned attacks and be successful at them, so fortifications ended up not mattering very much. This was especially true in one area in which a lot of time and money was spent, coastal fortifications. 
there was some concern about an amphibious assault against the ports that the Austrians used to access the Mediterranean. This concern was verified and amplified when the port of Pola was successfully assaulted during maneuvers before the war. This resulted in a lot of money going into these fortifications that would not end up playing much of a role during the conflict. In fairness, it could be said that no assaults were made on the coast, so the defenses were successful. However, it is highly unlikely that the Italians or the British and the French would have been able to stage the required amphibious assault force to make any kind of attack a success regardless of the fortifications involved. Unfortunately, all of this money spent on fortifications then robbed the infantry and artillery of funding, and it was not the only place that money was going. There was also the navy. The reasons for building up a navy for the empire were much the same as any other country. They wanted to be a major power, and being a major power meant having a navy, and the prestige that came along with it. They also hoped to gain something that all the other great powers also had, overseas territories. Even the Germans had gotten into the colonization game, and if the Austrians wanted some, they would need a navy to protect and interact with it. Once these expenditures were made on the navy, it was impossible to get the money back, and there was no chance to see any return on the investment during the war. Much like the German navy bottled up in the North Sea, the Austrian navy would be bottled up in port by the combined French, British, and Italian navies. While they were ships, there were never enough of them to do anything with, and so they would spend most of the war in port. Speaking of the war, let's talk a bit about the plans that were drawn up for the Austrian army once it started. Conrad planned on attacking in Galatia, with multiple army groups advancing in three different directions, north, northeast, and east. These advances would be done simultaneously, and it had hoped that they would be joined by a German attack out of East Prussia. Conrad would write to Moltke that, quote, In my decided aversion against any waiting, and in my conviction of the worth of the initiative, I will seize the forward deployment in the fastest offensive possible, end quote. And this is the strategy he would pursue regardless of German participation. While these large army groups moved forward, they would be joined by cavalry, and the role of the cavalry is explained in the official Austrian history of the war in this way. Quote, Conrad had sent the Habsburg mounted forces on a long reconnaissance ride, in the spirit of the southern cavalry in the American Civil War. The Austro-Hungarian raid extended through an area of Galatia 250 miles wide and 90 miles deep, and achieving success became an almost impossible task, end quote. The reason that this was impossible is because the cavalry was so separated uh, from the armies on such a wide scale and there were so many uh, enemy troops around that they just couldn't really do anything. When attacking the Russians, the Austrian troops would find themselves heavily outclassed, and this is the infantry we're talking about now. The typical Russian division had 60% more infantry, 90% more light field artillery, 230% more heavy artillery, and 33% more machine guns. And remember that this is the Russians we're talking about, not exactly the best army in Europe, and they themselves would be heavily outclassed in these same categories by the Germans, which should give you some idea of how far behind the Austrians were. Overall, Conrad's plan was simple. He would attack and he would keep attacking as long as possible. At the beginning, this would actually work out okay, at least sort of. The Russians had long believed that the Germans were their primary opponents, so their first move was an attack into East Prussia, leaving the Austrians sort of to their own devices in the south. However, the Russians were able to take advantage of their greatest intrinsic strength, the massive amount of territory they had, just as they had done countless times before and would in the future. 
The Russians were able to retreat, and the Austrians overextended themselves. The Austrians did not have even close to enough men to continue the attack and to maintain a coherent front as they had pushed deeper into Russian territory. As the three army groups advanced, they became separated and vulnerable, and the rest, as they say, is history. So to summarize, the Austrians believed in the offensive, like many other armies. And also like many other armies, they did not have the tools to pull it off. Only in this case, they were far less prepared than the other armies, and it would lead them to disaster. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you will join me uh, next month, or actually next week, I guess, for a Patreon episode where we will try and summarize and compare and make sense of all this information about the various armies of Europe uh, during the war. Before next month, we begin a series on artillery and how that evolved during the war.